First Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 through 16. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Today we are going to be looking at 1 Timothy 3, 14-16, and really talking about the mystery of godliness. Uh, before we get into that, I want to share a quick story with you. Um, so about, let's see, three or two and a half years ago, uh, my family and I went to Orlando, and uh, we... Uh, did Disney for one day, and that was about enough for us, if you know what I'm saying. And if you've been to Disney before, it is like overwhelming. So we were there, had a great time, and we were hanging out at the pool some, with some friends. And uh, so we're in our car driving in downtown Orlando, and all of a sudden, in our 2002 Honda Odyssey, the check engine light comes on. And uh, yeah, I got, we got, at this point, we, I think we have two kids at this point, uh, which would have been worse if we had four. Megan was probably pregnant though. But so we got two kids in tow. We're in downtown Orlando, unfamiliar area. I don't have a toolbox in the car. We don't have roadside assistance. This is truly a nightmare. So I pull over um, and, and, and then everything kind of, kind of, we've got to figure everything out. Uh, and we try to take off again. And the, the, the car is like running on like half of the cylinders that it has. It's so, like, I'm trying to go. <laughs> And we're, we're like not going. So I start kind of freaking out. And, uh, and then I do, uh, I pull over again and I happen to pull into an auto parts store, uh, providentially enough. And uh, I do what every man would do at this point. I whip out my phone and go to YouTube, right? <laughs> so I get with the auto parts store and they figure, okay, it's a failed ignition coil. Okay, and I'm thinking, okay, do y'all have the tools that I can use and we can kind of do this thing or not? And anyway, long story short, we got back up on the road in about 45 minutes, which was like just the grace of God blessing us while we were on vacation. But I was reminded of that story because um, Paul talks in 1 Timothy 3 about behavior. And um, behavior is important in the Christian walk, uh, not because it's how we earn our salvation, but because it reveals our belief. Behavior reveals belief. Just like the check engine light on a car, our behavior reveals kind of what's going on under the hood. And Paul talks a lot about this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And, uh, and so what I want to do today is I want to talk about this mystery of godliness. Because behavior is important. The church, he writes and says, hey, the, the, there's a particular way how the church ought to behave. And we get to that behavior, the, the fruit of that behavior, through having the root of godliness. And, and, and Paul says that there's a mystery surrounding this idea of godliness. That it's not attained the way that you think that it would be attained. He says it's a mystery. So what I want to do today is I want to, I want to quickly go through just what godliness looks like. So I'm going to look at false godliness, or ungodliness as the Bible calls it. Uh, we're going to look at true godliness, and then we're going to look at the hope of godliness. So let's look at false godliness uh, as we dig in today. I don't know... Um, if you've ever had a situation like myself where you have uh, said something where you have stuck your foot in your mouth. Any, yeah, all of you have done that before, right? Uh, we've had those situations where we say something and then we immediately follow it up with, I didn't mean to say that, right? It came out wrong. And what we really mean in those situations is that I didn't mean to get caught saying that, right? Right? That's really what we mean. I mean, because the Scriptures say that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. 
And so, false godliness or ungodliness as the Bible calls it, is a very real part of our story. We all at times see the ungodliness of our hearts, and it's not pretty. And we are tempted to put a mask over it and, and, and kind of fake it until we make it. But the Scripture said that we can really come to God. And so what I want to do now is I want to, um, I want to take the mask off of the different kind of forms and postures of ungodliness that you and I have. And to show that really the better hope is that Jesus fully manifests Himself in our lives and that that produces godliness instead of us trying to fake it until we make it. So here's a few characteristics of false godliness that I've experienced in my life and maybe you will resonate with them as well. First one is this. False godliness seeks the product of godliness above the person of godliness. False godliness seeks the product of godliness without the person of godliness. So what do I mean by that? I mean that, that we are tempted at times to just look godly even though we don't really, we're not really grabbing on to Jesus. And so we kind of fake it until we make it. And, and Jesus seemed to disdain this behavior above, more so than any other behavior uh, in God's people. I, I'm reminded of Matthew chapter 23 where Jesus gives what the Scriptures call the seven woes to the Pharisees. And if you, we don't have time to go into all of them today, but if you look at them, the theme of the seven woes is this, is, is you want to look a certain way on the outside and oppress the people that you're leading, but inwardly you are filthy and rotten sinners, and yet you're not acknowledging that part. And you want to project yourself as being godly, even though on the inside you are completely dead. Jesus says things like this. He says, you're blind guides. Your whitewashed tombs. So you look, you look beautiful on the outside, like a, like a whitewashed tomb. But really, the inside, the contents, is an embalmed, dressed up, dead person, right? That's what he says, those, those righteous deeds that they're trying to do. Uh, he says you clean, uh, you, you're clean on the outside, but dirty on the inside. He says they preach, but they do not practice. So, so Jesus is concerned with behavior in His church. But that behavior flows from us getting the person of Jesus inside of us and living His life outside. Secondly, God, false godliness relies on human effort. Paul challenged the church at Galatia in uh, Galatians, 2, uh, ch- or ch- Galatians chapter 3, verses 2-3, through 3, and he says this, Let me ask you uh, only this. Did you receive the Spirit uh, by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected with the flesh? What's He challenging them on right there? He's challenging them with this idea that they, they, they tend to, as Jack Miller says, uh, treat the Gospel of Jesus like a launch pad that, that, that shoots their spiritual rocket into the sky and then they kind of, once they get into orbit, they kind of can take it on their own. But really, he's saying the gospel is more like the foundation of a house where everything is built on it and everything depends on the surety of that foundation. He's saying you guys, you guys are trying to live this works-based righteousness after Jesus has kind of given you this, this shot of goodness by His grace and you're trying to do it on your own from here. He challenges them in that Scripture to keep coming back to the Gospel. To keep coming back to the fact that Jesus has to produce godliness 
inside of us. As one author put it, grace isn't opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. So the temptation is for us to produce godliness on our own. And we think that's the mystery. You know, it's a better quiet time this year. It's, uh, it's actually following through on those commitments that I had. And if we're honest with ourselves, we've already blown all of our New Year's resolutions, haven't we? We've already all blown them. We've already missed days. We've already, done, we've already missed days at the gym. We've already missed days in our one-year Bible reading plan. But you know what? Jesus is so real that, that, that He still meets us in the middle of that with His grace. Lastly, false godliness is a condition. Let me explain this one because this is a little bit... Uh, the semantics can get off here quickly, but false godliness is a condition. In Romans chapter 1, Paul talks about this idea of ungodliness being the natural posture of the heart. It's the natural posture of all of us. And only a person that's been brought to life in Jesus can actually produce a godly life, a life that looks like God. Listen to what he says in Romans chapter 1. For the wrath of God... That's a word we don't like using very often. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived every, ever since the creation of the world in things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkness. So while ungodliness is a behavior, it is something that comes out of us, ungodliness runs a lot deeper than just your behavior. Um, it's a suppression of the truth in our soul. So it's, it's, it's this idea that, that we think that we can produce something that we don't have the ability to produce. Um, the, the path of, uh, of ungodliness is ultimately the product of an unredeemed, flesh-centered heart. But when Jesus comes to live inside of us, listen to what Romans, sa- Romans chapter 4 says happens within us. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. So what's that mean? If we're trying to work to earn our position with God, it's this quid pro quo relationship. We try to work, and if we do our job, we get our payment, which is right standing with God. But he says it doesn't work like this with God because we could never be good enough. He goes, Paul goes on to say this, and to the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted to him as righteousness. So the true work for the Christian, if we want to be godly, is faith in the one who justifies the ungodly. God desires our godliness. And this is a fact for all of us. We know that. We know that we can never match up when we, when we get to the bottom of our heart's desires. But the mystery is, is that He's the one that produces it within us through His Spirit. That's what God does when we cling to Him in faith. He produces this in us through His Spirit. This is the mystery. So let's look at what true godliness is now that we're trying to take the mask off of of false godliness. True godliness has to do with who you are more than what you do. True godliness has to do with who you are more than what you do. 
Because here's the reality. When you know who your dad is and you're secure in that, you know how to live. When you know who your dad is and you know that that relationship can't change, you know what it means to live as a son of God, as a daughter of God. And this is what Paul's talking about in 1 Timothy 3. He's, he's talking about really who we are as God's people. He kind of gives a manifesto of what the gospel is in 1 Timothy 3.16. And then he encourages them to live out of that. And Paul does this over and over and over again in the church. As he says, hey, here's who Jesus is. Here's what he's, here's what he's done. He gives us the indicative, the things that God has done for us to be in right relationship with him. And then he tells us the imperative. Here's how we live in light of who God is and who we are in relationship to him. So 1 Timothy 3.16 gives that little manifesto there. And I want to just quickly walk through what the gospel actually is and what that means for us. He sums it up in one verse and he says this, He was manifested in the flesh. So God had to take on flesh to come and be near to us because we couldn't build a tower tall enough. We couldn't climb a ladder high enough to get to Him. So He had to come to us. Now, we don't need to be naive about that or be apologetic about that. The reason that Jesus came to us, that God in the flesh came to us, was out of the Father's love. It wasn't like, oh, i got to go down there and take care of it myself. It was, no, I delight in my children. And I want to show them more of who I am. So the incarnation of Jesus was the plan A from the beginning. It was always God's plan to send Jesus in the flesh to redeem us. He was manifested in the flesh. The Scriptures then say He was vindicated by the Spirit. So He was, he was justified before the Father through the Spirit. Romans 8.11 says that the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead will also give life to our mortal bodies. My, a, lot, a couple of guys in my discipleship group are memorizing Romans 8. And I'm just always struck by that verse that the, that the Spirit vindicates Jesus. It shows that the, the, the relationship is still solid even though He endures sin. He goes on the cross. He's perfect. The Spirit raises Jesus from the dead. The grave could not hold Him. That means that our greatest fear, which is sin and death because of our ungodliness, has been dealt with. It's been dealt with in full. And so, this is why our work, apart from the Spirit, will always lead us into the ground. It will always lead us to death. But faith in the One who raised Jesus from the dead, belief in Him is where we experience resurrection, where we are not punished because of our sin, because Jesus endured it for us. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels. So Jesus, where's Jesus right now? He's seated, as, as the book of Hebrews said, He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And you know what He's doing? He's representing God's children on earth right now. He's interceding for us to the Father. What a beautiful thing. That we can, we can have assurance and be secure in the fact that we still wrestle with our flesh and the fact that we're still ungodly a lot of times, we can sit in assurance because of our faith in the One who intercedes for us. And He presents us as Himself to the Father. Spotless, blameless, holy. As, as, the, as the book of, I think it's First Peter says, we are a royal priesthood, holy and blameless. That is who you are if you're in Jesus. 
And if you're not in Jesus, it doesn't matter how good your life is, you're still ungodly. It doesn't matter how many good things that you can do, you're still ungodly because you haven't been raised from the dead through the power of whom we raised Jesus from the dead. That's what makes us godly is Jesus. He was proclaimed among the nations. So this, this news was not just going to be for the Jewish community. This news is going to be for the world. It was going to go from Jerusalem to, Ju- to Judea to all of Samaria to the ends of the world. The church is to hold this out. It was believed on in the world as the Scriptures go on to say. And us believing on Him while we're still in the world apart from Him unites us to Him. And we have assurance of the fact that He is going to come back and take us up into glory, as the Scriptures say, because He's been taken up into glory. The good news is, is that we are eternally knit to Jesus through faith, regardless of how good or bad you are. But what your behavior does, and your behavior is important, is it reveals your belief. It reveals who your dad is. It reveals where your assurance comes from. And that's important for us to see. Major Ian Thomas says this, Godliness is not the consequence of your capacity to imitate God. That's what the world thinks that godliness is. Is how well can I make my life look like God's character in Jesus? How well can I do that? He says it's not that, but rather it's the consequence of His capacity to reproduce Himself in you. Think about that. It's the capacity to reproduce Himself in you. That's the consequence of faith. That's what it is. Is that He swells our heart to be able to receive the love of Jesus even when we have nothing to offer. And that's what produces godliness. That's the mystery. Is that we receive godliness by faith. Our lives look like God because of faith. He goes on to say, it is not self-righteousness, but Christ-righteousness. The righteousness that is by faith. A faith that by renewed dependence upon God releases His divine action to restore the marred image of the invisible God. What a rich statement. That is by renewed dependence upon God. So what does it look like? The question then is, Okay, we want to be more godly. We gotta, we gotta become more aware of what, what Jesus, what the treasure chest of Jesus Christ for us actually is, and how do we be secure and confident in that? And then our lives will look more godly because we'll know more of who Jesus is. I've found uh, this week, as I've looked at the Beatitudes, that the Beatitudes, which are found in Matthew chapter five, if you've got a Bible, you can turn there. Found in Matthew chapter five. Are, are not, um, they're, they're of crucial importance. And here's the reason why. Jesus is gathering a crowd and, uh, and He begins to preach really His first sermon and really one of a handful of sermons that we have documented in the Bible. The way that we would call a sermon a sermon where He's speaking to a group of people that are listening. This is probably actually the only one that we have in the Bible. He speaks in the synagogue, but this is the only sermon the way that we see it. And what's the first thing that he wants to tell us in that? Well, the Beatitudes. And I think the Beatitudes are a roadmap to, to, the, to the godly life. They're a roadmap to how we grab onto the life of Jesus and what it looks like for a person to surrender 
so that a godly life can be produced through us. So let's walk through these real quick here. Some of you will know these. Others will not. It's okay either way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So as we read these, I think that there is an order to these. This is a roadmap. These are contingent upon each other. So some, for someone to be able to receive Jesus, to be able to, to have the capacity to see God's life swell inside of them, they have to be a person that's poor in spirit. They have to be a person that, that cannot show progress with their sin apart from Jesus. Think about that. I, I can't get better. I mean, isn't that what we think godliness is a lot of times? Is we're like, hey, I, I'm getting better with my sin issue. Here, let me, let, me take a, let me take a picture of my Bible and my coffee this morning. Or, or, or let me tweet about it, this verse that I read, or, or, or whatever it may be. We want to show progress. And the world demands that we show progress in godliness. Because after all, if Jesus lives in us, we had better be getting better, right? But if we're honest... What actually happens in the Christian life is we become more aware of our sin. And it feels like we're getting a lot worse. And we have nothing to show for it except more awareness of our sinful inclinations, our sinful desires, our sinful leanings when we interact with other people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. That means that that's kind of a precondition for the blessed life. That you're poor in spirit. You know that you cannot produce a wealth in spirit, a joyousness apart from someone else imparting that to you, and that person is Jesus. He goes on to say that blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those that can't fix themselves, they can't fix other people. You're blessed! You're blessed! And all we want to do is fix other people. All we want to do is show that, that things are getting better. And Jesus says, You're blessed! You're mourning! Megan and I sitting in the truck last night driving back from a wedding in Rome. And that's, man, that's out there. You know what I'm saying? Driving back from Alabama, basically. And, um, and it was kind of a quiet car ride home. And she looked at me when we got back and said, hey, you know, I just felt like we just had an opportunity to kind of sit together in the, in the mystery, sit together in the morning of not being able to figure out what multiple sclerosis is doing to your body and how we get better and all that. And there was just the sweetness to not trying to fix each other. Blessed are those who mourn, who, who can set eyeball to eyeball with someone and realize that we all need Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. You know what meekness is? Meekness is quiet strength. Quiet strength. And people that have quiet strength, you know that they have quiet strength, but you'll never hear them say that they have strength. Meekness is clinging to the one who is strong. It's saying that, as Paul says in uh, 2 Corinthians 12, that strength is found in perfect weakness. Perfect strength is produced whenever we realize how weak we are. And we see that Jesus' grace is sufficient even when we cannot show our progress in the Gospel. We cannot show that things are actually getting better. Now, these three are a precondition, I think, to, to, the, to the next beatitude, which is what we all long for. A hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Man, isn't that what we want? We want to desire God. We want to be thinking about Him when we wake up, when we go to bed. 
We want to desire Him with everything that we have. When the Beatitudes, we see that there are three things that happen before that that are things that we don't want. We don't want to be weak. We don't want to be poor in spirit. We don't want to mourn. The pathway to hungering and thirsting for righteousness is weakness. And then the fruit of Jesus is seen. Right? The fruit of Jesus is then seen because then blessed are the merciful. We begin to show mercy because we've received mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. And what's he say? Rejoice and be glad. Jesus why could we rejoice and be glad when we're falsely accused? Why, why could we do that? For your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. This is the mystery of godliness. This is the pathway to a godly life. Is that we confess that we don't have it together and it's a good thing that we don't because we would go on a different path. We would not follow God. Everyone in here right now, let me tell you how you should feel right now because you guys are kind of locked in. You're all looking at me. Here's how you should feel. Man, I'm glad I can be me. That's how you should feel this morning. Because Jesus wants to bring you rest. He wants to bring you comfort. He He wants to swell His goodness inside of you. But He can only do that if you let go and surrender. If you... If you can just be where you're at and not try to fake it till you make it and not try to put a mask on, but just be where you're at and watch Him produce a godly life inside of you for the world to see. <clears throat> I was talking to two men this week. We're having a group discussion. And these, these two guys had this similar story. They said, you know, I really wanted to grow from the time I became a Christian. I really wanted to be more like Jesus. But both of, their, both of their narratives had a similar intersection. It was this. I didn't start growing in God, in God-likeness, until I was certain of my faith. I was assured that God was not going to leave me even when I blew it. Think about that. So, so what, are, what are these guys saying? Well, when we are confident and assured of the fact that Jesus loves us even when we blow it big time, We have the propensity to go back to Him in confession and repentance and say, Jesus, I blew it, but I know You still want to produce Your love and Your life inside of me. I, I I think it's common for all people. We'll never grow in the faith until we're certain that Jesus loves us. Because you know what we'll be doing? We'll always be trying to earn position with God instead of live out of a relationship with God. That's what true godliness is. This is why Jesus got so frustrated with the Pharisees. Kevin DeYoung says it like this, when it comes to godliness, trusting does not put an end to trying. So we trust, and then we live out of that. And the difference in trusting to try to earn relationship, and then trying out of the trusting, the difference in those is that we are at peace, we are at rest, we are filled with joy in the middle of the mess. That's the difference in the two. And you, you know it in your heart 
whenever you're trying to, to kind of push forward and just kind of, to kind of make a way, even though you know you're not right with God, you know the difference. And God says, you feel that way because you shouldn't be doing that. God calls us to surrender. And if we don't do this, every act of piety or godliness will be a ploy to earn position with God. And that was never the intention. Lastly, what's the hope of godliness? Paul brings this back into talking about the hope of godliness as the church. Let me read 1 Timothy 3, 14 uh, and 15 for you. I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Now that phrase, most commentators think that is the linchpin of the whole book of 1 Timothy. That is the most important verse in there. That's where the hope of godliness comes from, and that's what God wants to do. So, so we, learn, uh, we learn about how to live by looking back at who we are. So here's how he describes the church. What we are, be- what we are and what we are becoming as God's people. It's called the church. We, the first thing he says is that we're God's family. We're His household. We're the household of God. He, he, the first thing he wants to remind us is the fact that we are in relationship with God through faith. That we already are the family of God. Now in the early church, the, the, the word for household is this word called oiko, oikos. And oikos is this idea of an extended family. So uh, we kind of think of the nuclear family when we think about the household of God. And so what that looks like is like, you know, we come together on Sunday mornings and we might be in a small group together, but, you know, we're kind of garage door kind of people. You know, we go in and we go out and we kind of get on with our business. But the oikos was different because it was like, you know, it was an extended family and it was like a kind of a a family reunion that never ended, okay? That's the description you get and some of you are thinking, man, that's like my worst nightmare. (laughs) But it's this beautiful picture of all these people that had all these things that they didn't have in common, um, but the things that they did have in common were the things that actually mattered and made them one. So he says, you're the house." Hold of God. The way that you live together shows the world who I am. The way that you uh, serve together, the way that you repent together, the way that you show perfect strength and weakness is good. So God makes us His family. Next, He goes on to, to talk about this idea of being the church of the living God. So we're the family of God, but we're the family of the living God. So Just as in the Old Testament, we've got the the tabernacle and we've got the temple, and that's how God dwelled among His people. He says, now I've made you the temple. As 1 Corinthians says, you're the temple now. Now through my Spirit, I'm going to live in you. And not individually in you, although I'm going to do that, but but really corporately, I'm going to live in you. And so as you're gathered together, the world sees God in a way that they could not see God. Just... Just me and Jesus. So that's why Sunday morning is important. That's why every time we gather together with the church, it's important. That's why the Scriptures say where two or three are gathered, I am there with them also. It's important to gather together as the family of God because we show that God is living. We show that He's real, that He's not dead, that He's alive. And then the living God chooses to reveal Himself to the world 
through his family. And here's how he describes kind of our, our, our role as the church. And this is for the hope of the world, okay? He, he describes it as a pillar and a buttress of truth. Uh, those are words that we don't use real often. But a buttress is like a foundation. Um, and it, it kind of go, goes deep underground and it goes wide so that it can hold something like a pillar. Because a pillar is a great thing. It's cool for the world to see. It goes really high. It's great. But it's only as good as its buttress. as its foundation. But if the foundation doesn't go deep, the pillar's not going to last long and you can't build it very high. So he says that the church and the way that we live together as God's family should protect, be a buttress, a strong foundation, and promote the truth. So the way that we live together as God's family ought to protect and promote the truth. So we hold God up high through the way that we walk out the mystery of godliness together. I I often think about what it looks like to really get the Gospel in this regard. And and I I think it looks like we would stop trying to fix each other and, and we would be okay with, um, with, with the mystery, with, with the things that we can't figure out, uh, that we um, wouldn't have to be uh, okay all the time? Like it's okay to not be okay? Our, our st- I asked the staff this this week in our staff meeting and they said, we'd have to eradicate the word fine from our vocabulary. You know what I mean, fine? Hey, how you doing? I'm fine. So what's that do? It just cuts off the conversation. We live together as the family of God. We know that Jesus is holy and that He's perfect and that He's pure. And it's okay for us to not be those things. We'd have to have margin in our lives to live together as the family of God. We'd have to show grace to those who don't yet have the God of godliness. See, oftentimes I and other Christians... We get offended when we see the appearance of ungodliness and we think, how dare they? That's not who I am. So i got to separate myself from them because they're living this way. But when we don't earn godliness, godliness is a gift from God, I think we have a different posture. And I want to close this out by sharing a story with you uh, from a pastor in Nashville. Uh, He said one of the, the first small groups that he led, this is like 15 years ago, he was in this small group, much like our missional communities, and they were praying. And it was this beautiful, rich time of prayer. And in bustled this couple that uh, was late. And, um, and the wife usually came to the small group, but the husband didn't usually come. So the wife comes in, she starts praying, the husband comes in a few minutes later, and it becomes clear very quickly that the husband is inebriated. And he decides that he wants to pray. And so here we have an inebriated man in the middle of a small group that wants to pray. And so he starts, uh, he starts praying that God would give him Jolly Ranchers. And uh, he starts praying for protection against the Klingons. And I mean, it's, his prayer is getting ridiculous. And it's not like he just offers one of those little polite prayers that's a minute long. This is like over 10 minutes long that this guy's praying. Okay, you can imagine like the, the awkward turtle, you know, would be, you know, real high. It'd be super awkward in this situation. And so the prayer finally ends, it seems like an eternity. And then everyone, because of the pastor's small group, everyone then turns to the pastor. 
Like, hey, what you going to do, man? What are you going to do with this one? And he's, he says like internally, his heart's like, he doesn't really know what to do with it. And so he doesn't do anything. And he says, finally, this lady rescued him. And she said, does anyone want a cookie? And the, the conversation transitioned. But the comment that the lady made and how she postured the church of the living God who Jesus died to make godly among an ungodly man ultimately led to this guy's faith. Led to his salvation. Led to him going through a rehab facility. Led to him becoming an elder of the church some years later. Friends, how we hold out the truth, how we protect yet promote the truth is, is of utmost importance. And my desire is that New City Church would be a place where it's okay to be ungodly if you don't have Jesus. How can we expect people to live godly lives without the person of godliness? Now this is risky, okay? This is uncomfortable. This is like tons of awkward moments, okay? But if this church isn't for lost people, then who's it for? I mean, Jesus, Jesus wants to desperately grow us in godliness, but He also wants us to be a pillar for the world to see the God of godliness. So let's pray together. Father, we, uh, we are sinners. <laughs> and uh, man, that's good. That's good news that we're sinners. And the reason that's good news, like our sin isn't good, but the fact that we're sinners and that's our identity makes us look to You in faith for salvation. Makes us look to You for the pathway to godliness. And I, I just want to pray for those in here this morning who just say, hey Ryan, like I'm not getting better in my pursuit of Christ. Things seem like they're getting worse. My depression is creeping up. And I don't even want to be around the people of God anymore because I don't want them to see how much of a mess I am. Father, I pray that You would eradicate the unbelief that the Father of lies wants to perpetuate in this church. The New City Church is a place where it's okay to not be okay because Jesus makes us all okay. And while we look and we long for the fullness of our God-likeness to come to fruition, we wait patiently because we know that You are a God who is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slow, but He is perfectly patient, not wanting anyone to perish, but for all to come to saving faith in Jesus. So we want to live that way, Father. We want the godliness that only You can produce. And so, Father, we, we want to take a step of faith today as a church, and we want to we want to take off the mask. We want to take off the mask because we realize that it's a whitewashed tomb. That it looks good on the outside, but inside it's full of a corpse that's embalmed just to slow the decay. So Father, we come to You with our real selves because that's after all who Jesus came for. He came for the real us. And somehow You beautifully manifest Yourself an inviting posture for the world to see as sinners come together who are poor in spirit, who mourn and can't fix themselves. So we, we pray 
Swell that desire in us and make Jesus sweeter than He's ever been. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.